Father in heaven, what a beautiful day this is. We just enjoy the fresh air so much. The rain that makes everything green. Father, we ask that the rain of your spirit, the cool breeze of your spirit, might be manifested in this place. Give us clear minds and willing hearts, and we ask that you will empower us to proclaim the special message that you have given to your church to the world. We ask, Lord, that you will guide our thoughts, that you will guide our every action this day. And we thank you for hearing our prayer, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, if you want to come a little bit further forward, that would be good. Um, there are many of you way back there, and my eyes are not as good as they used to be. So I'd like to uh, see your beautiful faces a lot closer. All right, let's review what we studied yesterday. I'm assuming that most everybody that's here this morning was there uh, yesterday for the, for the session. What does the little book contain? Okay, what is the sealed book? Ah, what portion of Daniel? Mainly chapters 8 through 12. You have an introduction at the end of chapter 7 with the judgment scene. But mainly chapter 8 through 12. But not so much the succession of events, but what particular aspect? The aspect that has to do with what? With the judgment. On to 2300 days the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That is the one point, the, the one thread that we saw in all four chapters, right? Chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and of course 12 through verse 4. The rest is an epilogue to the book. Okay, now the question is, where in the Bible do we find the unsealing of this book? In Revelation chapter 10. And in Revelation chapter 10 you have a mighty angel that descends from heaven. Who is that mighty angel? That mighty angel is Jesus Christ himself. And what does he have in his hand? He has a little book. Um, the one having been opened is the tense of the verb. The one having been opened. So when he's about to descend, he what? He opens the book. He has a message for the world. And um, so he opens this book. And then he plants one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. What does that represent? Ah, it represents that it's a what? Global, worldwide message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And what else does it mean? What does planting the feet mean? Ah, ownership. He's saying, this is mine. And now I'm going to present a message to the world so that everybody can know that this is mine. Of course, he won it at the cross. And then... When he comes down with the open book, by the way, what date does that book open? Ah, uh, we read a clear statement from Ellen White, also Daniel 12, indicates that the little book is opened in 1798, when the papacy falls, um, at the conclusion of the French Revolution, 
the little book is opened. And then you have many people that begin preaching the, the judgment. Ellen White mentions Joseph Wolf, Lacunza, and many others, leading up, of course, to the Millerite movement uh, from 1831 and following. And then when he arrives, he lets out a roar. And what happens when he lets out a roar like a lion? Oh, seven thunders, seven peals of thunder. Uh, is this common ordinary thunder or are these words that he spoke? These are words. What was it that he spoke that uh, he then told John, seal it? He was explaining that there, that there was going to be what? There was going to be a disappointment. There was going to be a miscalculation of the figures. And that happened between 1842 and 1844, the spring. You know, when they originally thought that Jesus was going to come in the spring of 43. And then they thought he was going to come in the spring of 44. And then, of course, Samuel Snow in the summer discovered that, uh, you know, they had miscalculated when the Day of Atonement was. And so they said it's going to be the fall of 1844. So, in other words, the, the sealing of the seven thunders, the seven thunders uttered that there was going to be a disappointment. And John was told not to write that. And a mistake was covered. And what was the purpose of that? Ah, the purpose was to test the people to see who really longed for the coming of Jesus and who didn't. We have a question over here. <clears throat> Yes, yes, that's another example. Uh, remember we read from John 12 yesterday where Jesus, uh, where the, the voice said, I have glorified you and I will glorify you again. And uh, some people thought that it had thundered, but other people said it's the voice of an angel. And uh, so that's another example from early writings. You know, it's, the thunder is not simple thunder. Uh, it's really declaring the day and hour of the coming of Jesus. And of course, this is after the close of probation. This is right before the coming of Jesus. So the text that says no one knows the day or the hour doesn't really, uh, is immaterial at this point in history. Okay, and then, um, and then this angel, who is Jesus Christ, after uttering the seven thunders, he raises his right hand to the heavens. And what does he do? He swears in the name of whom? Of the Creator. And what does he swear? Time will be no longer. What time is that referring to? That's referring, it must be referring to prophetic time. When does prophetic time come to an end? October 22, 1844. So where are we at when he raises his hand and swears that time will be no longer? Where we've moved from the seven thunders, the preliminary events that lead to the, you know, the first couple of disappointments because they miscalculated. Then now, with the oath, you're at October 22, 1844. Right? Yes. And so he raises his hand, and he says that time will be no longer. And then you have that verse that speaks about the finishing of the mystery of God which is really out of chronological order. It says, when the seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be finished. But there's something that happens before that. 
And that is the episode that has to do with the little book, right? And John is told to eat the little book. And he eats the little book, and it's what? Sweet. Well, actually, it says it would be bitter in your stomach and sweet in your mouth. And then it says it was sweet in my mouth and bitter in my stomach. And that's what we're going to pick up on now. The, the chiastic structure there has a very important purpose. Uh, but anyway, that means that the message that came from the little book, which is a message of judgment, right? The little book, the main point is the judgment. So is the judgment message going to be sweet when it's assimilated? Absolutely. But then was it going to turn bitter in the aftermath? Absolutely. So are you supposed to look for a movement that uh, assimilated the message of the judgment and preached the message of the judgment? And at first that message about the judgment was wonderful. And it, they had expectancy and they were filled with joy. And in the aftermath it became a bitter experience? Yes. Are you seeing how this chapter is really illustrating the whole Advent experience from beginning to end? It's amazing. In precise chronological order. Book opened. Seven thunders. The oath. The eating of the book. Sweet and bitter. And this leads us to the point where we were at yesterday. The chiastic structure of Revelation chapter 10 and verses 9 through 11. And uh, some of you might not have been here yesterday, so let's go over this again. Uh, I think this... Do you have page numbers on yours? No. You don't have page numbers? No. Well, it's where it says chiastic structure. That's where we left off yesterday. Notice that it says, you have A, B, C, and then it's repeated in reverse order, C, B, A. That's what a chiasm is. And so the angel tells John to take the scroll and eat it. That's 9A. Then in 9B, the second part of the verse, it says, it will be bitter in your stomach, and then 9C says, it will, in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And then in, the, in verse uh, 10, the order is reversed, 10 and 11. Uh, and so he says, I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, and it was bitter in my stomach. And then what is he told? Prophesy again. So let me, what is eating the book equivalent to? It is equivalent to prophesying again. Now, let's take a closer look at that. Now, uh, let's go to the section where it says, Bittersweet Experience. That's the next subtitle. The content of the little book causes a bittersweet experience, sweet at first, but then bitter in the aftermath. We have already identified the book as the portion of Daniel that has to do with the 2300 days and the judgment. This must mean that the message of the judgment would be sweet at first, but then it would become bitter. Now, there's a prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that forms the background of this prophecy of Revelation 10. The eating of the scroll means two things. First of all, it refers to the assimilation of the message, or the eating of the message. Secondly, it means to share the message with God's people. So eating the book means two things. It means to eat it and to share it. 
This is corroborated by the closest biblical parallel in Ezekiel 3, 1 through 4, where the prophet is told to eat the scroll and then he is ordered to go and share the message with Israel. So the picture here is that those who lived immediately before 1844, they studied Bible prophecy and what did they do? Particularly concerning the judgment. They gobbled it up. They ate it. But then what did they do when they ate it and they understood it and they assimilated it? Oh, they preached it. Fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Now let's read that passage in Ezekiel where we have these two ideas. It says, Moreover He said to me, this is Ezekiel 3.1, Moreover He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll. And now notice, eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Do you see the two ideas coming through? Eat and what? Speak. Unfortunately, in many Adventist churches, we have spiritually obese Christians. Because we love to listen to the word and we love to eat and eat and eat. But unless we go and preach what we eat, we will be spiritually obese. So we need to eat and exercise. Now notice what it continues saying. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat that scroll. It means that he's understanding the message now. He's assimilating the message. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly. See the very word that's used in Revelation 10. Feed your belly and fill your stomach. Another key word in Revelation 10. With this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like honey and sweetness. But now notice what he says. Then he said to me, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. Is that clear? So you see why the chiasm is important? The first part of the chiasm says, eat it. At the end of the chiasm it says, prophesy again. They are not two separate ideas, they are linked together. Yes? It's eight pages from the front? Okay. Eight pages from the front. The subtitle is The Bittersweet Experience. The house of Israel in 1844 are God's church. See, Israel, after, uh, after the theocracy comes to an end, God's Israel is the church. Right? If you are Christ's, you are Abraham's seed. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but one who, who is one inwardly. And circumcision is not of the flesh. Circumcision is of the heart. And then the Apostle Paul says there are Jews that are not Jews. It's talking about, it's mainly, the message was mainly uh, assimilated by Protestants. But it, it applies to everyone who claimed to be a Christian at that time. It's a message for the Christian church. And by the way, did people come out from all of the churches to join the movement? This was an interdenominational movement, Catholics and Protestants of every stripe. In fact, the Harmon family, Ellen White's family, were all Methodists. 
1842, when they went to a, just for attending a Millerite camp meeting, they were disfellowshipped from the Methodist church. And so the first angel's message, the hour of judgment has come. The churches said, no way. And they shut the door. And so the second angel's message was proclaimed, come out. And so the people came out of the, of the churches and joined the Millerite movement. But the message was for all of the churches at that time. Uh, okay, you can read the rest of this. In the scripture, the words of God are described as being sweet. In Exodus 16, 31, we are told that the manna was sweet like honey, and the manna represents, of course, the word of God. Now, I'd like to read some of these statements um, from the pioneers about the experience of the disappointment in 1844. And the first of these I would like to read is from Ellen White. She clearly tells us what this book represents. Bible Commentary, Volume 7, 971, she says, The comprehension of truth and the glad reception of the message is represented in the eating of the little book. The truth in regard to the time of the advent of our Lord was a precious message to our souls. So she makes it very clear what the eating of the little book represents. The day after the disappointment, probably most of you are aware of this, Hiram Edson and another individual were crossing a field. Uh, you know, traditionally it's come to be a cornfield. There was a field. And, uh, you know, he uh, had this momentary intuition. You know, I don't know whether anybody can say whether it was a vision or whether it was an intuition or whether it was an enlightenment of the mind. Something happened. And he saw clearly, he says he saw clearly, that Jesus had passed from the holy into the most holy place of the sanctuary. Now, notice how he expressed his disappointment after October 22, 1844. He says, We confidently expected to see Jesus Christ and haul all the holy angels with him, and that his voice would call up Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the ancient worthies and dear friends which had been torn from us by death, and that our trials and sufferings with our earthly pilgrimage would close, and we should be caught up to meet our coming Lord to be forever with Him, to inhabit bright golden mansions in the golden home city prepared for the redeemed. Our expectations were raised high, and thus we looked for our coming Lord until the clock told twelve at midnight. The day had then passed, and our disappointment became a certainty. Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. It seemed that the loss of all earthly friends could have been no comparison. We wept and wept till the day dawned. I mused in my own heart, saying, My Advent experience has been the richest and brightest of all my Christian experience. If this had proved a failure, what was the rest of my Christian experience worth? Has the Bible proved a failure? Is there no God, no heaven, no golden home city, no paradise? Is all this but a cunningly devised fable? Is there no reality to our fondest hope and expectations of these things? And thus... We had something to grieve and weep over if all our fond hopes were lost. And as I said, 
We wept till the day dawned. These were people who loved Jesus. And they longed for Jesus to come. And they invested all their energy and all of their financial resources. Everything they had and everything they were, they invested in this cause. And Jesus had not come. Notice what Washington Morse had to say, another one of the individuals who went through the disappointment. He says, the passing of the time was a bitter disappointment. True believers had given up all for Christ and had shared His presence as never before. The love of Jesus filled every soul. And with inexpressible desire they prayed, Come, Lord Jesus, and come quickly. But He did not come. And now, to turn again to the cares, perplexities, and dangers of life, in full view of jeering and reviling unbelievers who scoffed as never before, was a terrible trial of faith and patience. When Elder Himes visited Waterbury, Vermont, a short time after the passing of the time, and stated that the brethren should prepare for another cold winter, my feelings were almost incontrollable. I left the place of meeting and wept like a child. Can you feel the emotion? You know, we, we, we really intellectually can identify, but we experientially we can't really identify with what they went through. Notice what William Miller had to say. It passed. And the next day it seemed as though all the demons from the bottomless pit were let loose upon us. The same ones, and many more, who were crying for mercy two days before, were, were now, it should be now, were now mixed with the rabble and mocking, scoffing, and threatening in a most blasphemous manner. So the experience was not only bitter because Jesus didn't come, the experience was bitter because of all of, the, uh, all of the contempt that was poured upon them by the people who said, we told you that he wasn't going to come. They didn't want Jesus to come, really, because they were comfortable with the way that they were living. And they proved that they did not long for the coming of Jesus by the way in which they treated the Millerites. Now, let's continue with the, with the bottom of this page. The experience of the Millerites was very similar to that of the disciples at the time of the triumphal entry. Extremely similar. So if you say, listen, if you, people say to the Adventists, you guys can't be the true church, you started with a disappointment. And how can you believe, you know, and, and that explanation, you know, about, about Jesus going into the most holy place, greatest face-saving gimmick in history, as Donald Gray Barnhouse once said. But if that's the case, then Christianity is based also on a disappointment. In fact, all of Christianity is based on a disappointment from beginning to end. As I mentioned yesterday, John the Baptist was profoundly disappointed. He didn't understand prophecy. He preached it. He didn't understand what he was preaching. He misunderstood what kind of kingdom. Right? Did those who participated in the triumphal entry misunderstand what kind of king this was who was, was marching into Jerusalem on a donkey? Of course they misunderstood. Did the disciples before the day of Pentecost misunderstand the kingdom? They said, are you going to establish the kingdom for Israel at this time? They still didn't get it. And in 1844, did they misunderstand the kingdom? Yes. So was 1844 unique? It was not unique in any sense of the word. 
Because as I mentioned yesterday, every time that Jesus moved, his people failed to move with him. They catch up later. That's why I called this series Catching Up to Jesus. <laughs> because God's people are always one step behind. Now, now why in the world didn't Jesus just go ahead and postpone uh, what he was going to do? The simple reason is that Jesus had a calendar of events that had, it, had to be fulfilled as to day and as to time. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. There was a moment in which Jesus was supposed to be born. Was there a specific prophecy about when he was going to be baptized? Yes. yes, the 70 weeks told us when he was going to be baptized. So when he entered the court to live his perfect life during his ministry, was there a specific time prophecy? Of course. When Jesus died, was there a specific time prophecy exactly when he was going to die? As to hour, day, month, year. Absolutely. In the Hebrew feast, you have the day and the hour and the month, the Passover. And in the prophecy of the 70 weeks, you have the year, the middle of the week. Was, was there a specific prophecy also about the entrance of Jesus into the holy place? Did he have to enter the holy place on the day of Pentecost to begin his work of intercession? Yes. It was a calendar of events. Did he have to begin his judgment ministry October 22, 1844? Yes. So Jesus, instead of postponing what he's going to do because these people don't understand, he says, I'll go ahead, they'll catch up. Oh, that's. Oh, yeah, but, but I'm, I'm not talking about everybody that claims to be God's people catching up. I'm talking about God's true people catching up. Yeah, it, it, not, not everybody catches up. Because, you know, in 1844, there was only a small remnant that caught up afterwards. Do you know where all the rest of them stayed? All the rest of them stayed in the holy place. You know, that's a, scary, that's a scary vision that Ellen White had. It's the basis for the book Worship at Satan's Throne that I wrote, which is a crucially important book that I believe every Adventist should read. Uh, be, yes? Yeah, Pentecost came 50 days after first fruits. First fruits, first fruits represented the resurrection of Jesus. So 50 days later, would you expect... Uh, Jesus to begin uh, his priestly ministry in the sanctuary. Yes. Of course. And you know, one point that Christians fail to realize is, uh, most Christians fail to realize, is that Jesus did not forgive everyone's sins at the cross. You know, I ask this question in Adventist churches, and I'm amazed. When I ask them, I say, did Jesus forgive everyone's sins at the cross? And they say, yes. Almost invariably, everybody says yes. Jesus did not forgive everyone's sins at the cross. Jesus made provision, full and complete provision for the forgiveness of sin at the cross. In case you're wondering, I think my Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
worship at Satan's throne. Uh, you know, and, and the Christian world, you know, Ellen White says that Jesus went to heaven to pour out upon his people the benefits of his atonement. And I like to illustrate it this way. You know, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he made a full and complete deposit of capital in the heavenly bank to forgive every debt of every person that has ever lived on planet earth. There's only one condition. You have to come and you have to make the withdrawal. The capital is there. He put it all, I mean, provision was made to forgive every sin of every person who has ever lived on planet earth. But you have to come and you have to claim the capital to put it to your account. And then your sin is forgiven. Are you following what I'm saying? Okay, now um, let's um, let's continue here. Sure. Sure. That that Jesus has two thrones. He has he has a throne of grace and a throne of glory. When he went to heaven, he sat with his father on his throne. That's the throne of grace. But when he comes again, he will be seated on his own white throne. That's why Jesus said, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I overcame and sat with my father on his throne. In Revelation 3.21. Yes, that's when the prince of this world or the ruler of this world was cast out at the cross. When Jesus said, it is finished, the devil said, I am finished. <laughs> he understood very well what Jesus was saying. Yes. We need, we need to continually repent and confess. It's not a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Amen. You know, the capital is there. If we sin, the Bible says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And that's a significant verse. Because why, is, why is Jesus called the righteous? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Because when Jesus goes before His Father... He presents His righteous life. Because I have no righteous life to offer. You know, Jesus not only came to die for me, He came to live for me. He, he lived a perfect life that if I come to Him in faith, He will impute to me, which means that He will put it to my account. That's justification. It's a beautiful truth, justification. And so, you know, when Jesus, when, when I repent, and by the way, I don't repent. It's God who gives us repentance. Amen. <laughs> the goodness of God leads us to repentance. So when I see the goodness of God, I repent. So it comes from Him. Amen. So we don't really do anything. Amen. 
But when we consent to repent, we might say, when we respond to his uh, calling to repentance, then, you know, Jesus goes before his father and he says, Father, I come here representing Pastor Bohr. The father says, where, where is Pastor Bohr? Um, that's immaterial. He's in me. That's what it means to be in Christ. He's in me. And the father says, oh, he's in you. Okay, well, then your life stands in place of his life. It's a beautiful truth. But then he wants to, of course, live his life within me too. You know, that's the, the dimension of sanctification. Okay, now let's, let's go back here uh, to our material. And let's go through this parallel between what happened at the triumphal entry and what happened in 1844. There's a striking parallel. Uh, at the bottom of the page, you have the experience of the disciples at the triumphal entry. They had never had a sweeter experience than when Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey. They were sure he was going to establish his kingdom on earth, right? Jesus was in the, now notice this, Jesus was in the process of fulfilling which prophecy? The prophecy of the 70 weeks, which by the way is the first portion of the 2300 days. <laughs> That's significant. So the first, the prophecy that has the, to do with the first part of the 2300 days, he fulfilled. When Jesus died, they were what? Bitterly disappointed in their expectations. But when Jesus caught up to two disciples on the road to Emmaus and explained the prophecies that they misunderstood, did they gain new light? Yes. Of course. Jesus then entered the holy place in heaven to begin his ministry there, and the disciples followed him by faith. In which apartment did Jesus begin his ministry as his disciples followed him by faith? The holy place. And then Jesus told his apostles to do what? He gave them power to what? Power to preach again. But with the added understanding of what Jesus was doing in the holy place. And the Christian church was founded. Interesting. Did the disciples have to preach again? Yeah, did they preach with new understanding? Of course they did. Now the parallel with 1844, the Millerites also had a sweet experience. Expecting Jesus to come in 1844. They were certain that he was going to cleanse the earth and establish his kingdom forever. Were they misunderstanding the kingdom? Yes. Same thing. Now listen to this. Jesus even fulfilled a specific Bible prophecy, the rest of the 2300 day prophecy. It's the same prophecy. But their expectations were dashed because they misunderstood prophecy. Jesus then explained the prophecies that they had misunderstood. Sometimes they spent all night in study after the disappointment, trying to, uh, to, to learn where they had made their mistake, what Jesus was doing. Sometimes they prayed all night. And so Jesus explained the prophecies that they had misunderstood, and they realized that Jesus had moved where? Into the most holy place to measure the temple, and they moved in with him by faith. And then, what did they do? They were told to what? to prophesy again, but with the added understanding of what Jesus was doing. And of course that message is found in Revelation 14, 6 through 12. And just like the Christian church was established after the disappointment, the Seventh-day Adventist church was established after the great disappointment. Mm -hmm. 
1844. So there's a remarkable parallel between both events. Okay, it's time, right, to take a break? Or a minute? Okay, let's, let's go to the next section. <laughs> Prophesying again. By the way, I do recommend, uh, we'll, we'll do the prophesying again when we come back, but I do want to recommend that you read Early Writings, page 54 to 56. That is the vision that Ellen White had of the throne. It's a scary vision. <laughs> there she describes how the Father moved into the most holy place, and then Jesus followed into the most holy place. And there were people that were worshiping at the throne in the holy place. And a few of the people got up and they moved with Jesus by faith. They kept their eyes on him. They moved into the most holy place of the sanctuary. But most of the people stayed kneeling at the throne in the holy. Yes. 54 to 56. And the ones that were kneeling before the throne in the holy place were oblivious that Jesus had moved. Because they took their eyes off of him. And El... Yeah... Well, let me finish the, 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 the vision because it gets scarier than that. <laughs> um, you know, then Ellen White says that Satan took the place that Jesus had vacated next to the throne. And, he, and he, tried, he was trying to carry on the work of God. A counterfeit, of course. And she says that the people who had stayed kneeling before the throne, which, by the way, represents those who rejected the, to move into the most holy place of the sanctuary they would pray Father give us, give us thy spirit and the devil would breathe on them an evil influence which they thought was the power of God and Ellen White goes on to say that among them there were emotions and feelings and, and, uh, and there were miracles and signs and wonders which they thought were the power of God but you know what's interesting? What's interesting is that in early writings there's a part of the vision that is not there. See, Ellen White sent this vision to Enoch Jacobs who published a tabloid called the Daystar. I'll steal a little few minutes and then we'll make the second session shorter. Uh, <laughs> but uh, she sent, when she had the vision, as it appears in early writing, she sent it to an uh, individual called Enoch Jacobs, who published a religious tabloid called the Daystar. And um, she never thought that he was going to publish it, but he did. So when she saw that he published it, as it appears in early writings, uh, she wrote him a letter. She says, you know, I sent you this, but I never thought you were going to publish it. Uh, she said, if I'd known that you were going to publish it, I would have added a few things that I left out. And so then she added two very significant things to that vision as it appears in early writings. One is a small sentence where she says, right before she speaks about Satan, Satan's influence in the holy place, she says, then God showed me the difference between faith and feeling. And of course by faith, if you look at all of the rest of her writings, she says that she speaks about the faith of Israel going into the most holy place. 
the faith where the faith of Israel goes. So when she's speaking about, I saw the difference between faith. Faith has to those do with those who, by faith, enter the most holy place. Feeling are those who base their religious experience on feelings. And then she comments on those, those that are before the throne, in the holy place. But the real scary part of the vision is where Ellen White adds that she saw that many that had entered with Jesus into the most holy place backtracked and went and knelt with those who were in the holy place. Wow. And she says they received the evil influence of Satan. Wow. That's describing the present worship apostasy in the Adventist church. It's a very important book, Worship at Satan's Throne. Uh, the, yes. You know, I, I, I'm a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I love the Seventh-day Adventist church. This is God's church. It's the only church in the world that is preaching the message of God. But to, to say that there's not a worship crisis in the Adventist church would be a lie. Because there's a huge crisis in the Adventist church. There are churches where they will not allow you to mention the name of Ellen White. Yes. And I'm not going to mention any names. I could. Uh, there are churches that don't want you to talk about the beast or the, or the image to the beast. There are churches that don't want you to, to deal with the issue of sanctification. And there are churches where there are drums and where there's electric guitars. And if you're outside the church and you can't hear the lyrics you would think that there's a rock concert going on in the church. Because it's all about emotion and feeling, what turns me on. See, people want to go to the worship service for what they get out of it. I go to the worship service to worship God. Amen. Worship has become anthropocentric. It has become man-centered. In other words, oh, I, you know, I want to dress the way I want to dress. And I'll come if they give me a continental breakfast. <laughs> you know, and I, I don't like the traditional, I like the, the music that I hear out in the world. So it's all about me in the worship service instead of about the Lord. Amen. And in this book, this, uh, you know, I'm still a pastor after writing the book. <laughs> <laughs> And we've sent it out to many of the thought leaders in the church because I think that this book is critically important because it goes beyond the periphery. You know, usually we discuss, well, this music or that music? Clothing or, you know, this kind of clothes or that kind of clothes? Mimes or no mimes? Puppets or no puppets? You know, those are the symptoms. But there's something deeper, something that happened in 1844. Something happened to the religious world in 1844. You know what happened to the pioneers? When they entered the most holy place of the sanctuary, they soon discovered the law, the Sabbath, the judgment, the state of the dead, because let's face it, if the judgment begins at a certain point of time, then people did not go to heaven or hell when they died. So they start discovering all the distinctive doctrines. They go into the most holy place and they discover the unique doctrines of the Adventist church. The law, the Sabbath, the state of the dead, healthful living represented by the manna. 
Because God gave the manna to teach us to take care of our body temple and our minds. In other words, all of the distinctive truths of the Adventist church are in the most holy place. And what did the religious world do? They rejected every single one of them. That's why they're kneeling before the throne where Jesus isn't. Now, are there many sincere people in those churches? Absolutely. Most of God's true people are outside the Adventist church. <laughs> Ellen White says that. You know, and so what is our role? Our role is to tell them. Hey, come into the most holy place and worship, folks. <laughs> you know, come in, come in and worship the Lord and assimilate the message. It's about the message. It's not about the worship that, you know, turns me on. We talk about, um, we talk about meeting people's felt needs. Well, felt needs are not always real needs. And, yes. That's right. When she says that there was light and power, that is a counterfeit light. Because the Bible says that the devil can transform himself into an angel of light. So it's, it's counterfeit light that you have there. And then, of course, Ellen White, in successive visions, amplifies this very same point. For example, you read the, the vision, a firm platform. She goes over the same. Her first vision... It has the same central theme. All of these early visions have the same central theme. She has another one, which is the open and shut door, the chapter on the open and shut door. She says that when the, when the pioneers entered the most holy place, they were horrified. They said, the law of God is still binding. And the Sabbath is still God's rest day. And she says that when they presented it to, to the religious world, the religious world said, no way, we have no interest in that. And she says that they wanted to shut the door that Jesus had opened and they wanted to open the door that Jesus had shut. Because they did not want to face the distinctive truths, present truth for this time. And folks, if we're not, pre if we're not preaching the, the most holy place, we're not preaching present truth. Do you, know, do you know how to determine what present truth is? It's very simple. Find out what Jesus is doing. That's present truth. Is the cross important? Yes. It's vital for what Jesus is doing now, but that's not present truth. Yes. Is the intercession of Jesus important? Yes. Is his life, his perfect life important? Yes. yes, but if you preach about all those things and you don't carry it into the most holy place where his life is vital, where his death is vital, where his intercession is vital, but where you discern his judgment, then you're not preaching present truth. You can be preaching all of these other things, but you're not preaching present truth. So if you want to know what present truth is, just go to what Jesus is doing now and preach that. And do you know what he's doing? Do you know what he's going to soon do? He's going to soon begin the judgment of the living. And he's going to cleanse the heavenly records from the sins of his people. But listen, he's not going to cleanse up there anything that's not been cleansed here. That's the, that's the unique message. You know, that Jesus is about to begin the judgment of the living. Ellen White said in 19, 1911, she says, we don't know how soon. She says, soon, but none no, know how soon the cases will, be, will pass to the living. Okay, I have a little information here before. It's the thing is, Satan deceived those uh, Protestants and those people with 
Verantwortung und sich auch besser im Aufbau eigentlich auch besser mit den Assembly-Adventures und bei New Organization, der undermines all these feelers that are in the most holy place. And Satan is very successful now with the Seventh-day Right. And that's why we need to stay in the church Amen. and we need to support the church Amen. and we need to speak up. Amen. You know, I love that title of that book. Well, must we be silent? <laughs> no, we must not. When we see things that are not right in the church, we need to speak up. Amen. And you say, well, but we'll be, we'll be looked down upon and we'll be, you know, shoved aside. Well, so be it. That's what's happened all the time. But this is God's church and we need, to, we need to support the church and we need to preach the message and we need to stay inside of it. Amen. You know, we don't need to go outside and start throwing stones at it. <laughs> you know, uh, people who live in glass houses don't throw stones. Okay, now we're going to take a break and then we have only like 20 minutes left. <laughs>